0: Behavior, bitches.
1: Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we're here with episode 54. We're super excited for episode 54 because for the first time, Casey's rhyme is going to make sense. Give it to us, Casey.
0: Yeah, that's right. All right, guys, 54, bring it on Dr. Jim Moore. That's our guest. We're super excited to have him on today. First things first. So, you know, order of business. We need a, some positive reinforcement up in here. So, I'm going to read a really awesome new review that just came in on Apple. It is from LJJ Joan in big caps. Listen to this podcast. She said, hands down, the best thing to listen to while driving in between clients. Can't stop the motivation I get from hearing Liat and Casey talk all things ABA. Keep inspiring and being yourself because that's what everyone loves with a heart. <laughs>
1: Okay, behavior reinforced. Behavior reinforced. I'll keep being myself. Thank you for that review. So sweet. You guys know where to leave us reviews. Not that I'm soliciting, but I do love a good review. It makes me really happy, and we live for that. So leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts uh, app if you have that. But if not, you know where to find us. Instagram, at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Facebook, Behavior Bitches podcast. Patreon, you can find us on our Patreon and support us, or you go to our website, which again, sucks and we're fixing, it's behaviorpitches.com.
0: And Rosie, so- you know, I know Rosie's listening, and Alan did a great job. We had it just switched over to a WP Engine. Long story short, it's not your fault, Alan. You did great. Um, Also, so today's episode, uh, Liat actually had reached out to me about having this guest on and I did not make the connection until I think, like, yesterday of who it was. And then I got, like, so excited that I was, like, freaking out. Um, she said this teacher from FIT, teacher from FIT. I think you there.
1: were you were missing the stimulus equivalence, that James is the same as Jim. And then eventually I was like, yes, yeah, so we're having this guy, James Moron, blah, blah, blah. Moron. I didn't say he's a moron. I said more on the show. So. And, um, and then eventually, I think in passing, I was like, oh, Jim Moron. Yeah. She was like, Jim Moore, and you know Casey, like fangirls over anyone who's smart in the field. So then she went and did her research and stalked him. So Casey, tell us about our guest today so we can hype everyone up before we bring this genius on.
0: Yeah, so I've been following him for a while. Oh yeah, he's shaking his head over there like not a genius. Yes, he is. But anyways, I've been following Jim. I've listened to his podcast with Matt on Behavioral Observations Um, way back. Oh my God, that was episode, I think it's 64 for that, and he's already over 100, so I was probably in my master's program driving to Keene, New Hampshire, every weekend, two hours, and uh, definitely listened to Jim Moore's episode and loved it. Also follow him on Facebook and everything. So just really, now I get all his research that I'm so excited that I can go on the VACD and read it all. A lot of uh, cool research with like weightlifting and behavior analysis. Um, He had another sports one, too. I can't really remember what it is, but we'll let him talk about it. His um, bio that he sent is probably long enough for me to do an entire episode, so I'm going to let Jim... Introduce himself, but Dr. Jim Moore, um, Dr. James Moore, Dr. Jim Moore. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you, Casey, for having me and that that very overly gracious introduction. I often tell people. Uh, sometimes I have. Um, Student, students will come to me and says, hey, we just read your paper in class. And they'll start describing it to me. I'm like, no, that's Jay Moore you read. That's the smart Jay Moore. I'm <laughs> the Jay Moore who does some useful stuff sometimes. So I appreciate humble, it. very <laughs> humble. So uh, I'm really excited uh, to be on. And it was one of my FIT students who just started saying, hey, you've got to be on. And uh, then Liat, Liat and I talked last week. And it's, I'm just really excited about it. Something different than my typical Zoom meetings every single day of my life right now.
1: Yeah. Where oh, do you different. Don't hang out with bitches every day? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, it would be fun. It would be it would be yeah. a lot of fun.
1: We like to well, um, let's have some fun. Get into this. I'm excited.
2: Cool. So all
0: right, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into ABA.
2: Okay, so my background, uh, I'll try and be real quick, but it was not your traditional path. A lot of people, I did not know an individual with autism. I was actually a music major in my undergraduate, uh, but my, my roots in ABA started unbeknownst to me as a kid. My dad was an accountant and my mom was a research assistant for a German microbiologist. So all through my house. I can remember we would watch the news before we would eat dinner and then we'd sit down and talk about it. And my dad would always say, opinions don't matter. Evidence matters, you know. And uh, my, my mom used to say subject subjectivity is intellectual laziness, that you can, like always, your parents. you can always find objective truth. Some of them are harder to measure than others. We might not have the tools to measure some of them now. And so I'm. this is how I grew up. So all through my undergraduate, I remember when I took my general psychology course as a freshman, I'm like, okay, that's that's just not for me. That's just, there's a bunch of gobbledygook. It's just, it's all a matter of opinion. And they didn't really introduce me to Skinner or operant conditioning uh, in that course. They, they told me in 1991 that behaviorism wasn't even gonna be covered because it was a dead school of thought. And so I, you know, all I could find that I was really good at and enjoyed was teaching kids how to play drums and and playing drums and all sorts of percussion instruments. So because of that, I had to take a course called educational psychology, and I literally put it off to the end because I had such a negative experience with general psychology. And this instructor started uh, with operant and respondent conditioning. That was the first unit. And it turns out that he was uh, fairly hardcore, radical behavior, behaviorist. He was a licensed psychologist, but you know, there was no BACB back then. But, uh, I remember I was sitting there with my textbook standing up because I was really trying to write, uh, uh, score music for the drumline I was teaching that afternoon. And I heard something about objective measurement. I just looked up and I was like, what in psychology, objective measurement, what, and he goes, well, if you had been listening instead of writing music, you would have heard, and he started going <laughs> back in, and I just really, I just found that very interesting, and so I liked to read back then, and so I said, hey, is there anything that you could suggest I would could read that would help me understand this better? And he suggested about behaviorism by Skinner, um, which I now know is kind of funny because that was his attempt to bring our philosophy of science to the masses, which just showed that Skinner really probably struggled talking normal language to people because that, that book in and of itself is very, very difficult. And I just kind of went through and just started tearing through everything I could get my hands on uh, of science and human behavior, behavior of organisms. And I just, it just clicked for me. That's how I was raised to see the world is this, this science that I'm reading about. That's how I was raised. And I started talking to the instructor, and uh, he introduced me to the man who became my graduate mentor. And I started doing a little research because I thought it was fun, and I decided to go to graduate school. Now, back then, there were no master's programs in ABA, and there was a few PhD programs, but they were very, very difficult to get into. And, And I wanted to get paid. I didn't want to go into an academic job back then. So the only avenue was to, get a license in psychology. And so I stayed at that university. This uh, gentleman uh, he's now deceased, Ron Edwards, became my mentor. Uh, I was really fortunate. I had to do an internship because I was getting a PhD in psychology and I didn't care, you know, where it was. I knew that Wayne Fisher and Kathleen Piazza were who I wanted to learn from. I was fortunate enough to, to place with them and spend time learning from them. But then, you know, I came through at that point through a great, well, great and kind of somewhat not great history of our field. It was great in that there were so many still pioneers still with us who had such an attitude of giving to the field and giving to young people. And I was really fortunate to benefit from that. Uh, Gina Green continues to be to this day someone who I can pick up the phone, I mean, she, she's the person who taught me stimulus equivalents like I was four years old. And mm-hmm. today she helped write our licensure statute here in Mississippi, didn't ask for one bit of credit for that. Um, and just, you know, time after time after time, you know, I've been so fortunate to, to just learn from some great people and then work with some great people. And so a whole bunch of water under the bridge. I've, I have, I have, you know, when I get asked, like, what is my focus in ABA? I don't really know because I take the clinical problems that come before me and try to use our science to solve them. And so we've, I, I ran a CrossFit gym for a while, and I noticed that, gosh, we have all these people who've never lifted a barbell, and now they want to do the snatch and the clean and jerk because they see CrossFit people doing that, and there's such powerful rule-governed contingencies of CrossFit that have to be attended to that I need to use some science to figure out the best way to teach them because in weightlifting, there's not really a, a pedagogical arm of their field that looks at how to teach people. And so we did that and we used the, the we used ABA to do that. I've done, uh, I was uh, consulting with a registered dietitian in a weight loss clinic in Mississippi. And we've just pushed out a paper with some data from that where we were using ACT uh, to really help make these value, uh, these committed actions, which are really just attending to rule govern contingencies in the face of a direct acting contingency under an MO influence. And really stick to that instead of discounting and going to that. So we we used a lot of principles there. A lot of what I call client-oriented studies, both in functional analysis and severe problem behavior to more to today, which is more learning, uh, language and learning acquisition. And really trying to say years ago, thanks to the attitudes of science that I was trained under, I've always found myself in that attitude or value of philosophical doubt, I've always asked myself and my team, is this the best we can do? Is this the best we can do for this client and their family? And years ago, thanks to that very background I talked about, I came to the conclusion that for individuals who are not verbally sophisticated, yeah, that's some really powerful stuff. But when kids start to talk some of our methods kind of fall apart and we need our, but our science is sound the foundation of our science is sound and can accommodate for new problems and that kind of led me into looking at different applications of functional analysis uh, and, and and a wider application and problem behavior but more recently uh, looking at applications of rft into the direct early intervention uh, programming of children with autism and so that's, a, I, I'm, that's kind of a rambling talk on how I got to where I am. I've been a college dean. I used a good behavior game to eliminate littering and, and dorm destruction on our campus. Uh, I just feel really fortunate that I learned a powerful science that I still, as I told my FIT class the other night, I still believe can change and save the world. Yes. And, uh, so I feel, and I feel very fortunate that as that my graduate mentor, Dr. Edwards, was a brilliant scientist, but he was not a well-known brilliant scientist. So he, I didn't have to learn his research agenda. I learned everything he knew about science and about being a good database problem solver. And I feel very fortunate because I was allowed to apply that knowledge to things that interest me rather than being a drone, just doing this lab's continuous work uh, that's been happening for years and years and years.
0: And I think one of the things we talked about earlier is that um, a lot of new BCBAs are, you know, the younger generation um, coming out of, like, kind of these mill programs. Um, they're not fully grasping their, you know, they're oh, Skinner said this, but I did not read Skinner or whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. And not be- not really fully understanding that we are scientists. This, this field is science and it can change people's lives. Um, You just have to really understand the basic underpinnings, but also um, realize that it's ever changing, right? And like be able to um, flow. Like Skinner said, regard no practice as immutable, change and be ready to change again, accept no eternal verity experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Use that philosophical doubt. um, And again, it comes down, boils down to the client. The client is the most important thing.
2: That's right. And, you know, I I think that we we have uh, a lot of arguments. One of the big arguments that continues to happen in our field is, should we train clinicians to just do practice or should we train them in the foundations of our? I don't know what the difference is, to be honest. To me, when I see a clinical problem, that's this. I should take the same approach to an experimental question. The only difference is the experimental question is the referral concern. And I'm not going to sit here and just endlessly run sessions until I get stability like I might do in a lab because the clinical needs of the client should always come first. But I've always found in 25 years in the field that if I take this natural science approach to the practice of behavior analysis, that the most important thing that happens is better outcomes for the client. You know, I am going. You know, I was talking the other night in class about analyzing sources of variability and how that's unique in our field. And I see so many times I'll go into clinics and I can I get to consult all over the country. I go into clinics and you'll look at the variance and and behavior analysts just have this look of panic in their eyes, like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" I'm like, "That's where your answer is yeah. determining what is driving that variability." will point you where you should go. That's the analysis point of our field. That is science. But unfortunately, I think a lot of really good people and passionate people simply get taught to implement curriculums, protocols, and procedures. And then it becomes like a matching game. Oh, I got a kid that's got vocal stereotypy. Here's what I've done in the past for vocal stereotypy and not really attend to the unique individual sources of control over those behaviors for the client.
1: Which brings us into our topic today. Exactly, you already started it, which is amazing. And uh, it is tribalism in our field. Um, And bringing it up as this term was, I hadn't heard it as that before. And I think it's a really cool way to put it. And correct me if I'm wrong in anything, but tribalism in the field is that You go to one place, right? And this place is, we are a peak center. We are VB map. We are, and people are picking a side. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And, And you could speak more to this, but the idea that these are all tools that we could be using and having knowledge in all of them, that these should all be things in our toolbox that we could pull based on the needs of the individual or the organization or... The family that we're working with.
2: right. so so when I when I think of of this term I call tribalism, uh, it's very similar to what you see in the history of other natural sciences like a fight between science and religious dogma and dogma being like we don't want anything to change. we like the way things are. we're very comfortable in what we're doing. so let's not let's not do anything. Uh, and then you start to see generalizations made from, from major figures in the field, like Skinner. Like I hear talks about Skinner's pragmatic approach. And it's like, listen, Skinner's pragmatic approach was based on William James' pragmatism, which was basically what works matters. That's what matters, you know. And, but now to hear this overly rigid application of things. Another thing I think, kind of, when I think of tribalism, it's about the search for who's right and who's wrong. And that's not really how I was taught science works. You know, science is about discovery and exploration. You know, every time a bridge is built in, in the world, there's a certain percentage of Newtonian physics that's still applied to that bridge building. But thank goodness that things have progressed. And when people start to say, well, no, this is Skinner, Skinner this, Skinner that, I'm like, okay, you're doing early intervention and language acquisition based on a text published in 1957. Well, just a few years earlier, an Argentinian doctor won the Nobel prize for medicine for the prefrontal lobotomy. But now we have a much different understanding of neurosurgery and that procedure like, how many of you would like to go to the dentist and see that they're still doing procedures like they did in 1957? No, you'd be like, No, I'm not getting in that chair, dude. I'm not gonna hold me. <laughs> You know, when I was a kid, your doctor would come in to examine you and he was likely gonna smoke right in your face and use some real antiquated things compared to today. And so I often ask, how many of you are thankful that medicine has progressed? How many of you are thankful that technology has progressed, that we have this amazing internet that puts information literally, like when I was in graduate school, I had, my first purchase every semester was a copy card with about $400 on it, because I had to go and copy all the articles I needed for class, for my dissertation, for everything. Now, it's just all available online now. But yet, why are we insisting that our technology of human behavior in areas stay stagnant in 1957 or 1982, if you're doing functional analysis, and... Do we feel like we've met this promise of our field of saving the world? I don't Mm -mm. because we, we get very narrow and very you're either this or that. And, And Leah, you said it great. It's like, I always get asked, Oh, so you're a peak guy. No, I use peak right now because I believe it has the best data out there. And I have seen that both clinically and in the research literature, but the moment something else comes out that, benefits my clients better and that's demonstrated through good functional data. Guess what goes on the shelf? Pete, it goes up on the shelf. Yeah. And and I think that that's, that is in line with our value of philosophical doubt, constantly questioning, is this the best we can do? And so I just see some of the dialogue in our field right now. And I just sometimes just shake my head saying, listen, the world's burning down and we're arguing is this bi-directional naming or or arbitrary applicable relational responding? You know, and, and we're arguing, you know, can you do, you know, I had someone come into our clinic one time and said, oh my God, you're doing a carbone prompt delay procedure within a PEAK program. Okay. I was like, yeah, that's what this client needs. We did a careful assessment. That's what the data suggested. And we published those data in Java and they made us, you know, take everything out the re- reference peak because it's like supposedly those two things can't go together. Why not? You know, why are we limiting ourselves? You know, why is it that I have to choose either Greg Hanley's approach to functional analysis or Brian Awada's? I have some clients, and Greg has disagreed with me on this, I have some clients that that type of analysis is absolutely appropriate and best practice for them. I have some clients that Greg's approach. I mean, there's some in the middle too, you Absolutely. know? And, and so it's, it's been uh, a, a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit concerning to see. I, I've reviewed papers for journals where it's really clear that the intent of the author was to completely bash one approach that they see, that they judged as inappropriate for the field of behavior analysis. mm mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just not
1: as like an exploration reason, like not for the purpose of exploring it. It, Mm -hmm. It's more an ego.
2: Yeah. I'm not really asking a true skeptical question, which to me, every scientist I've ever encountered. And I've talked to myself, wow, that person is a scientist. They've always had healthy skepticism, always asking questions that lead to better questions What I'm seeing is more cynicism, which is about who's right, who's wrong. And hey, by the way, I'll go ahead and tell you, you're wrong, I'm right, because I'm the one talking now. And it's all about ego and dismissiveness, overly pessimistic, skepticism is optimistic. It's about, wow, we get to discover something. Like I ask graduate students all the time, how many of you wanna be running the same types of programs 20 years into your career? day after day after day? Or what if we could find technologies that not only were new and exciting, but benefited your clients in different and better ways? Wouldn't we all want that?
1: Absolutely. So. absolutely. And I think something, you know, not just in our field, when, when you see science practiced really well, I mean, I've seen it in my own life in terms of medically. So I remember... When my dad was diagnosed with cancer ever many years ago, it was like this ego. Thing. We were at a private hospital here in Dallas, and right, these are scientists essentially like studying medicine, and it was like an ego thing. Like, no, I'm the ENT. I should be the one able to take this as my case. I'm the one doing this. And then I later had a lot of my own health issues and went to Hopkins, right? And I've never seen... People collaborate and stay in their lane, but reach out when they need guidance on something else. And it wasn't egos. Yet I had the smartest doctors. I felt I had seen science done in such an awesome way, right? Like these are all some of the smartest guys in the field, these doctors Mm -hmm. at Hopkins that I had. And it was so impressive to me because I had been in one place here in Dallas where I saw it was an ego thing like, well, this should be under my, um, because it's located near the ear, nose and throat or, but I'm the oncologist or this or that. But when you see people collaborating and using their knowledge in these different areas to come up with the best solution, mm-hmm. it's so cool to see. And I, I think what I see a lot in, in ADA just, and I'm sure it's happening in other places too. That's where I've seen it in one way, but is this, does what you're doing necessarily have to be categorized under one of these, you know, known, um, I don't know if it's a method or a approach or assessment, whatever it is, when really if you understand behaviorism, you're able to look at that as in simpler terms of the antecedent behavior and the consequence, Right. Thinking mm-hmm. outside the box, maybe for this one I don't like I don't have to look at peak right, but my understanding of it might help. Or maybe this is not really a VV map case. What about really understanding that conceptually systematic nature of behavior and looking at it on a bigger or more pragmatic scale.
2: Yeah, I think I think that that's a great point, and we can bring that home clinically. Like when you say that, hey, uh, we're a peak clinic. Well, that means on the front end a priori, before the client comes in the door, I've already decided my assessment methodology. That's not that's not an acceptable approach to the science of human behavior. I should triage referral concerns. I should spend some time with the client's behavior, and I should choose. Uh, an assessment methodology that will likely best lead to the best treatment planning for that client. Whether you know we'll have and and but that's so I think foreign right now in the field that when we first started our our clinical practice here in Mississippi three years ago, we would have to constantly go to peer review because they'd say, okay, in this report you used PEAK, you used parts of VBMaP, you used parts of Essentials for Living, and you did some direct observation stuff. We didn't violate their billing caps. They just were like, what's the deal? When it's like, well, if you'd have read the first part of our report, when we actually did the open-ended interview. We triaged the referral concerns and decided that these assessments, like I need the, the uh, methods of alternative speaking assessment from EFL because this kid right now doesn't have vocal speech. And if I'm going to have a functional communication goal, I would rather have, rather than me deciding, oh, well, I think we should do sign language or I think we should do PECS or I think we should do, like, why? Why are you, what variables in the client's life and repertoire are you considering before you select what you do? And I think that goes into every, and I think that when we choose camps, that individualism at the clinical level can can potentially get lost.
1: Do you think this could possibly be shaped by, insurance. Because for example, I worked at a clinic and it was like, okay, we need a Vineland for every kid that, that we need that. Right. Or Mm -hmm. we need, so like I'd be working with a higher functioning individual. Right. And I'd have to write their goals into VB map goals. So like I'm working on social skills, but now I have to try shape it to, because the insurance provider wants to see it as VB map so that they'll provide services. So it's like this person will man to ask someone for information how the individual's doing. And it was like, I'm trying to fit into these criteria. Mm-hmm. So it kind of shapes you into this tribalism.
2: That, that's right. But here's the problem is that, and if you notice over the last few years in insurance billing, we're getting pushed more and more toward the VB, I mean, toward the Vineland or the PDDBI, or the PB, PBBDI, or the PDDBI, I always get the right. <laughs> Pervasive Developmental Disabilities yes. Behavior Index. Yes. And the reason that people don't talk about, the reason that's happening is, what standardized measure of change do we have in our field that can be applied like, you know, like a knee surgeon Two different knee surgeons may take two different approaches to fixing the knee, but the standardized measure that says if it's better is the same for both. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we don't have that in our field right now. And so we get forced to do things like, because the truth is is that even if they have BCBAs reviewing for them, so much of what we do is, is, where it's like, yeah, Hey, this is a change because we see it. And what insurance pays for are things that can be verified. That's one problem. And so, yeah, you're right. The the, the consequence of our field not having some standardization in terms of treatment progress is starting to shape up behaviors that are just kind of mindlessly doing things because they have to. That's a problem. I think also, if you've noticed uh, a few months ago, CASP took over, the, uh, the practice guidelines document from the BACB. And the reason that had to happen is, here we are, we're billing insurance. All other fields that are billing insurance have practice standards, not guidelines, but standards. Here are the standards of care for this practice. What we have are a bunch of guidelines. It's like, oh, well, comprehensive ABA should look like this. Focused ABA should look like this. An assessment should kind of look like this, but there is no definitive here it is, it's been peer reviewed, it's gone through multiple iterations, and these are the standards of care for this field. And so for CASP to pick that up and take it on, I know is a monumental uh, project, but it's very, very vital because that's why so many of us, if you talk to two providers, you're going to see that they both likely have two different paths to get funding that's not written down anywhere. It's like, oh, I know I have to do this for Optum or I have to do this for TRICARE. And it really should be about the same. The only difference is really should be about rates, but they get to dictate, you know, service limits to us. They get to dictate, and here in Mississippi, they, they dictate location restrictions. Like we can't go into the home for Blue Cross Blue Shield. We can't go into community settings. and It makes no sense.
1: They do that also here for some stuff in mm-hmm. Texas. And it's, yeah, it's, but it's what I'm trying to say is it is kind of difficult in ABA because, you know, it is about that individualization. Mm-hmm. But also, when you go into a new job at a new company or something, it's, you feel completely lost because there isn't any, like, it's like you want individualization, but you also want some standardization to know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, it, you kind of have to learn, even with insurance, like through contingencies. Like, well, I know if I say this, then they'll allow me to get the hours. But last time I said this, they didn't. And.
2: Well, I think I think you're right. There's so much uh, heterogeneity in our field from And it should be. That's what our field is based yeah. on. But one of the things that like, one of the things I'll often tell people is like a big difference between the VB map assessment and the peak assessment is one is criterion referenced and the other is norm referenced and criterion referenced assessments are good, except if you're trying to demonstrate that the child made a significant amount of progress, like how many, how many squares are significant. Now, if I'm now showing that six months ago, this child was this far behind his peer group. And now in six months, we've made this much progress on the typically developing peer group. That's a metric that no matter how I got them there, simply how I'm now, how I'm comparing those data versus a checklist that is supposedly going to get them to a certain spot versus a continual slope of improvement comparison to their peer group. Now, peak, PEAK still needs to put out better data. Uh, and right now, the, the equivalents and transformation modules still do not have uh, norm reference data. But the PEAK comprehensive assessment, all of those data for that assessment are currently under review, is my understanding. But whatever it is, it's like we, ha- we can't just say, here's a task analysis. This is what we think it should be. We have to take our task analysis and say, OK, a typically developing six-year-old can do these things. This six-year-old with autism cannot. Here's the quantitative difference. And then whatever method we use, we come back and reassess and now show, look how much progress this child has made relative to the peer group. That's that's the level of, of standardization we need. I, I tend to resist standardization from a practice standpoint because I think it kind of goes against some of the, the the foundational things that make our field so powerful.
0: I was um, lucky enough in my um, my un- my graduate program to go through four uh, semesters of uh, peak training, uh, well, peak teaching, not an actual training, but um, and it was met with a lot of frustration because um, you know we weren't, none of us were actually trained in it, and we were teaching ourselves, and you know. I had, it was really rough to get through. And then once it finally clicked to me, like when I got to those third and fourth modules, um, of like why what RFT is actually, what stimulus equivalence actually is, like I knew, I didn't know
1: shit. Like I think I, I need to do this. I think I need to do this. I like I really openly admitting I know nothing about peak.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you sent me yeah. like
1: I, I need to do a training on it. I'm going to yeah. do some CUs. But,
0: you know, I had a great, you know, my program director came in and she had done a lot of work with Mark Dixon. And um, she was a 30-year-old. I just remember, just beautiful and had published so much research. I just thought she was, like, walked on water. Mm-hmm. Um, and But also was frustrated because we had to do all this, like, new stuff, right? And change is hard and, mm, uh, like, just being a little brat. Um but getting through it and her – and the, I attribute this to her too. Um, I doubt she listens. But um, my understanding of experimental design and research methods is huge in part to her. And when I was in it, I fought every step of the way. I was like, I don't understand why we need to know this. Like, blah, 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 blah. She made me into an actual scientist is what she did. And that's like to this day, like that's my favorite thing to teach to my students, um, get them to really have those light bulb moments of like, oh, mm-hmm. like we had – um uh David Cox on to talk about like all the cool research he's published and how EAB, you know it's where we started and it doesn't have to be this scary crazy thing. like you should want to go on to Java and read articles and like this should be fun and if, if it's not for you, then you might not be in the right field. like this is something that you need to actually um, want to do, right? It's your due diligence as a, a behavior analyst.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And you know the thing that's kind of come out of the political world, that is a little unsettling to me is the, is the phrase settled science. Oh, wow. That's that phrase is dangerous because the only settled science I'm aware of comes from like physics and chemistry, like the boiling point and freezing point of water, <laughs>
0: Yeah,
2: and, you know, uh, the carbon, you know, weight or or, 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 you know, from the periodic table of elements, when it comes to measurement that involves humans as the measurement instrument, we, we shouldn't, we should be really careful before we call something settled science. And in our field, we have a really bad of taking one study and then being like, that's garbage. Now throw it away. And if you do it, you're terrible.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I'm, 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 I don't know how controversial y'all want to get, but the one, that, the, the one that I'm really trumping on right now is social stories. Now, mm-hmm. granted, I've never used social stories in my practice because I, I have not seen data to suggest the efficacy of them, but that from the scientific standpoint, am I going to take one study and say now this thing that parents just buy into that fast that continues to grow in the pop culture as a scientist, I should still ask questions about that. And I'm just not willing to take one study and just join a mob and say, now we're all going to gang pile on uh, social stories. And no, and if you use them or if you even ask a question about them, you're stupid and terrible and probably not a behavior analyst. Mm
1: -hmm. I just don't
2: find those, you know, and, and kind of the face. Is
1: there literally one article on them?
2: There's, there's one article that is always cited as kind of like the death knell of social stories. And, um, and, and it, it, it was really comparing apples to oranges, in my opinion, because one one they compared one, one training strategy from our field that has escape extinction as a component to social stories without any contingency that the learner had to really do anything other than just sit there and look like they were listening. I, anyway, but-
0: um, I also want to back up real quick and just say, like, not just. Java. Like there's other, you know, amazing journals too. And so I just wanted to like, make sure that that is <laughs> very clear. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's JEB, right? How you pronounce it, behavior interventions, mm-hmm. you know, a ton of them, but just in essence what i was saying is that you should you know be proud to be a scientist and you know do your
2: research uh, i'm so proud i don't know if you can see this that i have a ghostbusters tattoo that says back off me man i'm a scientist i love that when when you ask my kids what i do for a living they don't say behavior analyst my 11 year old told someone the other day my dad's a scientist I love it. he studies human behavior and you know i hope to never lose that perspective because you know just, just kind of blindly implementing protocols without really trying to figure out the functional sources of control of someone's behavior just sounds miserable to me, you know. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, and I think that, you know, one of the great things Greg did as, as editor of Java is change the report section to a replication section because we don't have enough replications in our field. That one study I talked about, it should be, and I think it has been replicated, but we should have more direct and systematic replications so that we can see, are there certain populations that these procedures that work so well in one context may need to be altered somewhat to fit this context? Because we're not just single operant contingencies living in a vacuum, we live in a concurrent operant world or the contextual variables that impact our behavior are constantly changing all the time.
0: Can you talk a little bit to um, pliance and tracking? You used these words
2: earlier. Oh, appliance and tracking, right? So when you look, I, you know, one of the I- interesting things that I did when I started noticing this kind of very divisive tribalism in our field is I started looking at other natural science approaches. And then uh, two terms that that we can thank Steve Hayes and the RFT folks for that are extensions of rule-governed behavior. Pliance is when I follow a certain rule-governed contingency or set of rule-governed contingencies, primarily due to the social mediated consequences of those. And so if you hear someone you say, hey, what kind of functional assessment approach do you? Well, I do Dr. Hanley's uh, PFA and ISCA. It's so great, and, and you start asking them why, and then they tell you all these great attributes about Greg.
0: Which he does and have I, a lot, Greg, if you're listening. You have a lot of great attributes. Love to have but, you on the they, show.
2: But they don't tell you anything about the actual methodology. It's all about Greg, who's a great human being uh, and, you know, a great basketball player. But that has nothing to do with why I use a functional assessment approach. I'm applying to the socially mediated consequences, or I don't say, and I think this is really relevant to graduate students. Like I tell my graduate students from the start, you not only have my permission to openly disagree with me, you should do that. You should not take what I tell you as the gospel. You should verify every last word that comes out of my mouth.
1: We just said that the other day in our class
2: too. Yeah, and so when when I am now not responding in a certain way due to the perceived aversive social contingencies, I'm also applying in, in a little bit darker way. Tracking means that I'm following a set of rule-governed contingencies that are actually verifiable through data or just true in the natural world. You know, like if someone tells you hey, you get on this subway and you will go from 2nd Street to 10th Street and you've experienced that and it's true, you will follow that rule through, through the source of control of tracking rather than the person that is attractive and seems authentic, which would be more plies. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge my graduate students to say right now, as you consume information on our science, what source of control is mediating your rule governing contingencies? Is it pliance? Are you, you know, you know, you know, fangirling fanboying out there based on who the speaker is, (laughs) uh, or is it really about the science? And even when Leah and I talked last week, I was like, I would really like to talk less about me and talk more about the science and the work, because that is what when, when shit breaks down and your client is not responding and, or we're going to try and save truly save the world. It's the science that will save us, not the personalities. Yeah, people have to implement that science, but just because Pat Fryman wears a great suit and tells great jokes and is really engaging is not enough. He has to have a solid science of human behavior coming with that mm-hmm. to really affect change, you know, in a very meaningful way.
0: Yeah, and, you know, Again, back to just doing your research. And um, it's just, it's so important. And I hope that if there are like, you know, grad students listening, I know we have a lot because when we had Shane Spiker on um, about his book, I had hundreds and hundreds of messages from people that were his students, right? And like, so I know the audience is there. So I really hope that, you know, this hits home to some people who maybe, in the field or in their grad program and not really grasping the science and just kind of being like, oh, okay, this is discrete trial training and this is a token economy and not understanding like what goes (laughs) behind that.
2: Well, and I think, I think you bring up a really good point that we kind of have. She always
1: does. She always does. That's Casey's.
2: We kind of have this culture now and it's anywhere where we test knowledge, like uh, the BACB exam standardized testing in in, in elementary, mid, and high school. Mm-hmm. It's like more and more students feel that pressure. Like, I've got to pass this test. Tell me what the answer is. Yep. And so here I am telling my students, okay, I've given you the parameters of knowledge in which now you need to go out and discover. Which what? is
1: hard, especially in like, for example, when we're teaching a class on assessment, right? It's like, wait, so you're telling me I would interview the parent before I give them a survey and then the survey follows the checklist and then I'm going to go into their home and do an ABC. And I'm like, so that's just the general idea of assessment, right? You're doing some indirect partjuring, but it might not necessarily be in that order, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of understanding that also. And I think some things are harder to understand when there's not, an overall rule when it's like, this is the science, This, these are why we care about that idea of being conceptually systematic. Are you able to see that everything in life is happening through contingencies? Or are you able to, I mean, even last night in class, we were talking about um, just operant uh, conditioning and, you know, on a larger scale of selectionism mm-hmm. and then on a smaller scale of, telling a funny joke again because someone laughed at it and being able to kind of train loosely and understand these principles because, and stop me if I'm I'm going off the rail here, but I'm trying to say is just being able to connect the pieces on like, you know, we taught people, Oh, respondent behavior is, um, phylogeny right and then we start teaching about selectionism about and it kind of is uh, phylogeny because it's over lifetimes right but it is based on consequences about which things which character traits or traits of an individual survived so it gets complicated and I just really urge people to ask questions because
2: yeah you hear what
1: I'm saying or am I Am I making
2: this more confusing? No, I think it's it's perfect because to me those three levels of selection are as close to the foundation of the science of human behavior as anything else. And uh, you know, uh, phylogeny we know a lot about. Uh, ontogenic selection we know a good bit about, but as humans, cultural selection has such a huge influence over day-to-day life. And now you, you look, you know, how did people born without hatred in their heart develop into individuals that are now nose-to-nose with each other and someone might die? Right. You know, why do nations go to war? Why do we try to exude powerful coercive control across whole societies? I was I was I was a little. And so I think that's not well understood to say, you know, you look and you look at the folks who've actually done research in cultural selection. It's not a huge number of folks. Sigrid Glenn has probably done the most uh, looking at meta contingencies uh, and some of her other work. But think about how much we do every day that we've never experienced direct consequences of. Like, I'll always do this when we talk start talking about cultural selection in my class. I'll say, okay, raise your hand if you stop at red lights. Of course, every hand goes up. So now keep your hand up if you've ever gotten a ticket for running a red light or someone ran a red light and hit you or you ran a red light and hit someone else. Well, almost every hand goes down. Like, well, then why the hell are you all stopping at red lights? Yeah. It's because someone told you that. Yeah. You know, And you think about not only is the, the human world driven by role contingencies, is that unless you have a, a condition like autism that impairs your language, you also live in an arbitrary world. For example, I, it, I, I do this when I train and I start getting people ready for RFT and like why is this important, is I ta- start talking about non-arbitrary and arbitrary relations. So we'll go up and I'll put up a picture of a kettlebell and a feather say, which one is heavy? And everyone goes, well, the kettlebell, obviously. Well, then I'll put up a picture of um, James Hetfield from Metallica and Nora Jones. Which one of these is heavy? And everyone laughs. Like, laughs. Why are you laughing? I'm still asking you the same question, right? No, it's now in an arbitrary kind of colloquial way. And then I'll say, okay, so they'll choose. I <laughs> want to
1: come to one of your classes. Can I, Can I sit in on a class?
2: Well, I'm not, I'm not going to teach that fun content this semester because I'm wow. teaching it, but I do a lot of that when I do peak trainings too, because like Casey talked about at the beginning, I believe to do something like peak or act well, you really need to understand RFT. Okay. You need to understand it's theoret- theoretical uh, underpinnings. You need to understand it's methodological underpinnings. And so anyway... And so we'll take this up and I'll change the picture to James Hetfield and Dave Mustaine, the lead guitarist for Megadeth. Which one of these is heavy? And they start to laugh and then I'll put football teams up and I'll put the Saints, which is my team versus the helmet for whatever team I'm near.
0: Um, The Patriots. Thank you. Right here.
2: Yeah, If you don't care about football, you don't care about this at all, but I'll put up which one's awesome. Saints or Patriots. Well, Casey and I are going to obviously disagree on that. And we're also going to disagree on the question which one is awful with the same two pictures. Now let's take it even further. I can sh- I can put up which one is awesome: picture of Donald Trump, picture of Barack Obama, and that is going to evoke some serious passion in people. Hell yeah, and they're going to be damned convinced they're right. But who really is right? It's arbitrary, and so, so and that drives so much conflict because we simply will not accept. Now, some positions are unacceptable. Like when you violate someone's basic human rights, that's unacceptable. But when, you know, I can be rigid and say, you know what, Casey, y'all just deflating footballs and cheating. And she could say, we all are putting bounties out and cheating. And Drew Brees just put his foot in his mouth. But for most of what drives conflict in our world, it's like, who gets to be right? It's arbitrary. Because if I showed the picture of Trump and Obama, to a group of folks going to a political meeting in Vermont, I'm going to get a lot different response than if I go down to Ellisville, Mississippi, right down the road from me, and go to a Baptist church and make the same comparison. I will get completely different responses. And then when those individuals come together, all human beings born with the same potential, but now under different histories of reinforcement, now come together and that can... That can really be explosive. You know, we don't teach which we've seen. Yeah, we don't teach present moment awareness to kids. We don't teach uh, being open to different perspectives and different point of views. I told I told I said in an FIT faculty meeting yesterday, it's like we all need this huge human deictic training that makes us take on perspective.
0: Talk you about know? the human, the deictic training.
2: Like well, it's, it's just a lot of teaching IU. Uh, here, there, type relations to take on different perspectives. And so in peak that will start as all the peak uh, relational training starts with a non-arbitrary comparison. And uh, so you yeah. might have a kid put a picture, their finger on a frog and you have your finger on a mouse and say, which one are you touching? Which one am I touching? And then it starts to become more and more arbitrary into things like if you were me,
0: and I were you, and I was happy on Sunday, and you were mad on Thursday. What am yeah, I feeling yeah. on that? How you,
2: train you Now you think about it in real life. If you were me, and I am a white man grown, born in South Mississippi in the '80s and '90s, and I were you, maybe a Latina woman born in the Bronx in 2002. Now it starts to at least make an avenue to where I'm not going to apply my same rigid worldview to everyone. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's, beha- only behavior analysis can bring that perspective to the world. And so then when we look about back to this tribalism and we're sitting here and we're doing all this infighting and guess what we're not doing? We're not telling the world about our science. The UN last year for autism world day puts rapid prompting method on their stage for uh, uh, you know on uh world autism day not a, not an aba practitioner anywhere to be seen and yet we're still going to sit here and fight about skinner's pragmatic approach <laughs> and the world is freaking burning down and our science might could be the one that could save it yeah so you,
0: you got it i love that passion and that's exactly how i feel i have, again I, I have goosebumps all over my arms because I love, I see it in your face. And, um, I just, it's such an important message to get out there. Um, so thank you for, you know, being willing to share. I agree.
1: Practice. It's kind of crazy. Understanding this science that you could do so much cool shit with. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and sometimes it's problematic. Cause you know, they're like, you're like, you need to practice within your scope of competence, whatever. But, and the reason they need to say that is because it's so tempting to look at things and be like, I can do this. "Um, Well, well, do you see why no one's doing their work here? Uh, Maybe you need some, you know, just, and it's crazy. Like you look at these different just contingencies in the world you're, you're, we could do something. And I think people are scared to step. That's what I actually really admire about you. I see you've done, Oh, you were into weight loss. Okay. I'll do some research on it. I'm into this. I'll do some research. I think a lot of people are scared to step outside of the autism box Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: that's, it's kind of this matching law behavior goes or reinforcement flows. And that's where funding is. And don't, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I think it's amazing what it does for autism and we need people doing that. Um, And, you know, I have that personal connection with my brother, but I, I, I just, I really admire that, you know, and we'll put your different research in the um, show notes, but I really admire that you're like, Hey, I'm into weight loss. I'm going to do it with this. Or, Hey, I'm in, and you know, we had Dr. David Cox, who was doing the same thing, like You know, and every time I hear something else, it makes me that much more interested in saying, hey, I'm going to go do some research in dating. I'm like fascinated with behavior and dating. And I think I'm just intimidated about writing a research paper that's really aversive to me. I hate that.
2: Um, You know, I think that we often I was lucky enough not to be I was just told, hey, problems are solved with data. Experimental problems are solved with data, clinical problems are solved with data, and there's not a real big difference between those two. So I was never really made to freak out. You know, like my dissertation was very highly experimental, but it was also done in regular ed classrooms while the teacher taught. So it was very, very applied. And so I was never really freaked out about it. It's just that this is just what we do, and we get to write this stuff up, and that's kind of cool. But, but I'd made, like to
1: do the research, but I wouldn't want to write about it after. unless well, I like partnered with someone who liked to write, yeah,
2: then I'd be That's what I tell my students it's like you're not you know, if you look on my resume, you'll what you will not find is a single author publication. I've never done anything by myself or tried to cr- claim all the credit by myself because there's just certain things like this. That's
1: not fun. It's also not fun.
2: Yeah, this equivalence paper, it's about to come to where I push it back to of my co-authors and I'm going to be like, I'm done. I need you to write a little bit on this because yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I tell you know people all the time, if you really love strong clinical application, but you don't feel confident in experimental design, you can find more than enough people who will help you. At the university level, like Jordan Belisle at, Miss- at Missouri State University, is just chomping at the bit to partner with people doing research in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. And, and now Facebook is such an engine for collaboration. There's just no reason for folks who want to maybe do this but feel like, oh, well, I don't have this skill set. We well, don't have to have all the skill sets. That's why you build a team. Yeah, you know. And so it's all really- right. So
1: shout out if anyone is listening. And they like to do the writing part of things, (laughs) Um, using this as a person, reach out. I I would love, there's some things I would love to do research on. I could lead the research. I just really don't want to write. I hate writing. I even hate writing emails.
2: (laughs) So
0: I do all that. I do all that. Um,
1: Oh, do you want to be the partner? That's
0: cool. (laughs) Right in front of me. Okay. We have too many projects going on right now, girlfriend. But yes, no, something to look forward to. Um, is there anything else that you want to share today on the episode?
2: Uh, well, you know, I think, I think this has just been a good, you know, talk about our field should continue to progress and evolve. One of the, I read a, um, a great book called uh, Reality is Not What It Seems, and the author's name is now uh, escaping me. But it's a, kind of like a history of physics. And it was really enlightening to me about where we are. Physics has been around about five, 6,000 years. Our science has been around about 100 years. So we're still young. And uh, he ha- has this statement that says, uh, one of the things that a, an honest science does is it teaches you that what you learn in graduate school is already dated when you leave. And that what is left to be known far exceeds what is known and And that's that's,
0: exciting yeah it's
2: it should be exciting gosh we get to still discover stuff you know and i I have a capstone student that really wants to look at merging act direct contingency analysis mo's and delayed discounting applied to substance abuse and i think theoretically that makes perfect sense and i don't need someone saying well delayed discounting and acts valley sinner's pragmatic approach no it's you know, the studies that led to RFT were published in Java and JAB. So it's not like Steve Hayes went out to the Journal of f- Fluffy Pink Clouds and Rainbows and got something through a, a low, low-tier journal.
0: And actually, and so, RFT um, and has done a lot more research on uh, cultural awareness and um, racism than, than applied behavior analysis has by law.
2: Absolutely. So I would just encourage the listeners – to, to really ask yourself, how do you consume information? Are you a skeptic or are you a cynic? Do you find yourself excited about discovery or overly pessimistic and judgmental? And you know, really come to your own conclusions. If you're a behavior analyst, you, you should be well-trained in critical thinking. To evaluate the data and come to your own conclusions.
1: I think that is why they do when they say uh, philosophic doubt, you know, like the hashtag or like the word that goes with it is a healthy skepticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's probably why they use the word healthy skepticism is not an asshole skepticism. That's right. That's right. Some people are, are looking just to find something wrong with something instead of just building off of that.
2: And I find it very healthy to, to recognize that early and then just walk away from that type of interaction.
1: And also
0: ask yourself listeners, if you are engaging in clients or tracking, right? (laughs) That's, I love those words. And, uh, I'm going to have a ton of good show notes to share, um, for you guys to follow up. This was an awesome conversation. I'm super passionate and I'm just so, I want
1: to add, I want to, yeah, I'm really excited, but I, I got to use this platform for good too. So, um, before the show, we were speaking, and I don't know if Jim's going to want me to do this or not, but I'm doing it either way. Um, he has the cutest grandson, who okay. is Lucas, who is currently going und- uh, through a lot of treatment for cancer, which is around his aorta.
2: Aorta and behind his eye.
1: Okay. So I and aorta my, and behind?
2: And in his bone marrow.
1: And he's
0: only one years old, guys. It's mm-hmm. super, super sad. Jim's got yeah. been going through a lot, <laughs> so we're thankful he did come on here. But come yeah, on. thank you for giving us your time. Yeah, and-
2: he, he's such a sweet little boy, and you wouldn't know, maybe you would know when you saw him because he doesn't have hair and he's very little. But just, just to be around his spirit, you wouldn't think there was one thing wrong with him. But, uh, so he's a fighter. We've gotten a good report that his tumors are shrinking. He has a form of rare form of cancer called neuroblastoma. And, oh, uh, I know so. I don't
1: have
2: that. and so, uh, the, the one, the one around his aorta has shrunk about 85%. So which that's huge. Yeah, that so we're just hoping for a you know, continuation of that as he goes through another round of chemo. Um,
1: with that being said, uh, this puts his parents under a lot of stress. his uh, Jim's daughter, right has to um, she can't work. she has to stay home. And so what's been amazing is and enough of this tribalism, more of this pulling together of the field. Oh, yeah. um, Jim was telling us it's overwhelming how the response of people in the field have been donating towards this GoFundMe. So I am going to, you can't solicit for yourself. That's why I'll solicit for this. If you can give anything to help towards um, the costs that are, uh, recur- is the word recurring or occurring? Not occurring. Uh, uh, Incurring, bill- maybe. Yeah, In yeah, I'm not that smart. That's why we bring people like you on. Um, whatever it is, stacking up medical bills stacking up along with not being able to work along with if you can't get financially give your prayers um his name is lucas you could look at pictures we definitely have that in our show notes um let's come together as a field quit this tribalism come together for a good cause and thank you so much for coming on jim i really appreciate it
2: Thank you for Go so take me.
1: action. Show your behavior and take action immediately. Stop with the latency. We need immediacy. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, so you. Thank you. Guys, you know where to find us. I already said it before. I'm not going to repeat it. But as always, love you. Mean it.